now that you're helping out the modernization committee, can you talk more about that process? You know, it seems to be, at least by a lot of people's measures, a highly functional committee, um, where there does seem to be, at least on the from the outside, it looks like there's bipartisanship. Um, and you're looking at a wider range of issues, not just constituent service, but a whole series of potential systemic challenges that Congress faces and how to solve those. Has this committee work changed your view at all, you know, given you new perspectives or opened your eyes to anything different? And how has that committee actually been working? Um, so I think among the most important contributions of the committee so far has been the way that it has actually done its work. Um, and by that, I mean, there are six Republicans and six Democrats. There is not a majority and a minority. It's an equal number. When members sit at the dais at a hearing, they alternate Republican and Democrat. That means they are they have actually gotten to know each other as Republicans and Democrats, or as people rather than Republicans and Democrats, because they are not only sitting on their side. They have a Republican has a Democrat to his or her right and a Democrat to his or her left, and vice versa. Um, and so they have gotten to know each other. And so over time, they've built trust. Um, there are several members who left the committee at the end of at the end of the last Congress in December, and so we have several new members this Congress, and um, it's in and the committee is in the process of building its agenda. But it will be an agenda that the whole committee agrees on, not just the chairman. Um, it will be an agenda that there's consensus on, and then the recommendations that the committee makes will also be based on consensus. And in the last Congress, there were 97 recommendations. They were all unanimous, not just majority. And that reflects a commitment, reflected a commitment on the part of the chair and the vice chair um, to not pass anything out just because they could, um, but instead to really build consensus. And, and over time, I think the, the rank and file members of the committee came to see that they could have an impact and did have an impact because when they would raise a concern, it would be addressed in order to get to unanimity. <laughs> and so they did. And it was, it was. Um, I think most members would say that it was a unique experience for them in their service in Congress. And um, it's been a bright spot for me, again, having had the opportunity to work in the institution for a number of years, then go outside the institution to be able to come back and to be able to see up close and personal a committee that's working so well and members who have built those relationships with each other and where there is that mutual respect because i think it's an opportunity i think if more people could see an institution working like that they would feel better about their congress they'd feel better about better about their government and frankly i think that if more members could experience this model in congress they'd feel better about their work there too and so what about the substance that the committee has considered? Has that had any influence on your thoughts and brought any new ideas to how Congress could be made better as an institution? Well, I think one area that's always been on my mind, but that the institution is taking on, I mean, let me, let me step back. Every member that I worked for represented an urban area. And so Republicans representing urban areas, not something that that's something that's less and less common. It was always really important to us to make sure that our staff reflected all the people that we served 
because that's how you do good work when all perspectives are, you know, as many perspectives as you can get, I believe, are at the table and have input into the process. Um, and it was always a struggle. It was always a struggle to hire a diverse staff that really truly reflected the constituency we sought to serve. And, um, and that is something that I think the institution has also not done well. I mean, for one thing, there, it was a largely white and largely male institution until relatively recent, recently, and it's still a mostly white and mostly male institution, but that's less so than it was. And there's progress there every day. The committee last year heard um, strong testimony over and over again and the importance of uh, bolstering the abilities of the institution to reflect um, all Americans at all levels of the staff. And so, you know, who gets elected? The committee can't affect, can't affect what members get elected, but the committee can help make the institution more, um, can help the institution be a more attractive place to work for a broader range of people who more accurately reflect all of them, all of the, all of the United States and all of the people who live here. Um, there are just not, I mean, there, there are a very few people of color who serve as chief of staff on either side of the aisle, very few, many fewer than there are members. There are very few people of color in any senior position. Um, and that has, that, that has two important effects. One is there's not a broad range of perspectives at the table when laws are being made. Um, and as we've discussed, staff have an important role to play in building, in, in, in drawing up and, and creating the legislation that ultimately becomes law on behalf of their member. Um, and when that's not the case, it erodes trust by the American public. When, when if I don't see somebody, I mean, just as an example, when I became a chief of staff in 1990, I was one of five women in the entire house who were chief of staff. Um, who were my role models? You know, I kind of had to make it up. And fortunately, I didn't know any better. You know, like I, I, I was very fortunate. I, you know, I'd basically been able to get myself through college. And I kind of had this very young person's belief that I could do whatever I wanted, but not everybody not everybody has that perspective. And so if you don't have, you know, a foolish belief in your own invincibility, <laughs> and you don't have a role model. Um, it's very, it's, it's very difficult to say, maybe I could make a career there. Maybe that's a place for me. It's also very difficult if you're a constituent going in and you don't see people who look like you in that office, it's hard to know, can I trust these people to do the right thing for me? And so, um, so I think the committee had made some important recommendations in that regard that have been that have been followed up on specifically the establishment of an office of diversity and inclusion. But it's going to take a lot more than the establishment of the office. I mean, the culture of the place will will need to change over time. And I think, um, you know, the committee making sure that we're doing whatever we can to support that office is an important is an important piece. Um, it, it, there are 
there are other things like when the committee was first set up, we had we, we didn't have an idea that a pandemic was coming. And what we learned when we had to, when all the Congress had to go remote, as many businesses learned, and many you know all Americans learned, um, you know we, there just weren't the processes in place. And so, how can you maintain office cultures and functionality? Um, and and now, what have we what have we learned to do? that we that we really should hold on to you know not go back to the way we were doing things before but there are efficiencies and learning that can help the institution work better and so really thinking through what those are and making recommendations to help the institution hold on to what it's actually done well in the last year and build on that rather than fall backward is i think will be important um does that answer your question yeah, I think diversity and then is is your one uh, one learning from the committee, it sounds like, you know, in emphasizing that aspect. And then the other side is this kind of what we've learned from the pandemic in terms of potential effect, what we gained and what we've lost, I guess, from yeah. from that process. Yeah. Um, and being being willing to learn. I mean, Congress is an institution is not does not tend to be self reflective. <laughs> and, um, and and uh, it doesn't it doesn't tend to be to be self well I guess it can be self critical but there's another aspect that I wanted to mention to you um, with regard to the map because it does play into this and the, the work of the committee um, when you nationalize elections one of the one of the narratives that has emerged through the nationalization of elections is that Congress stinks right that Congress is really just a terrible place. And when you think about it, if I run for Congress, somewhat ironically, saying I want to serve in an institution that doesn't function, you know, what have I done? I've actually created a mandate for dysfunction, right? And so over time, um, you know, members members have run saying they're going to make that Washington is a terrible place. Elect me, but then they get to Washington, and so then they have to sort of keep feeding, particularly through social media. They have to keep feeding the beast with more stories about how Washington doesn't work well, which again over erodes trust and undermines undermines faith in the institution. Um, I think that. Um, you know what what the committee is trying to do is to rebuild to identify ways that we can help rebuild trust in the institution um, both for constituents and frankly for members um, who i think start from a good place but then they run a campaign that basically um undermines the institution and so they get there and they, they it's hard to it's hard to hit the reset button and say okay now how am i going to be a builder you know and um and so we're trying i think i think the chairman my observation i you know certainly don't speak for him but my observation is that the chairman is trying to and and vice chair are trying to be role models of how to be builders and um and that that that's an important contribution as well in breaking this cycle of running against the institution. So if we go back to your earliest days on, on the Hill or, um, and you, one of the interesting things is you've been through the, the newt side of things and, and, and some of these major 
changes in the way Congress ran, you know, during that time to now, with that kind of long-term perspective, what do you think is sort of worked or was a good thing that happened back then? And what are the things that had sort of negative long-term consequences for the institution of Congress? Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it was a very positive experience to have a, another, a leader who wanted to be a teacher. And my experience of Newt in the early 90s was that it was as a teacher. Um, he's, he's a very good speaker and, and he had the ability, I mean, he, he did convince, you know, 200 members of Congress that they could be in the majority when most of them had never even thought that was possible, you know, and they sort of all went along with him and then it happened and they were, you know, but, but part of it was, you know, him educating them over and over again, this is what it's going to take, you know, we have to have a philosophy, we have to have something we believe in, this is, you know, we, let's, let's really believe in our own power, because as Republicans, we believe in the power of the individual, we believe in personal responsibility, that starts with us. For me, as somebody who, um, you know, given my own background, um, you know, that really resonated with me, and that was new at his best. Um, having the, a contract with America that we were actually able to implement and made some good changes. I mean, like applying all the laws to Congress that it had carefully exempted itself from over the years, wage and hour laws. I mean, that was an interesting experience when, when um, we, the first bill that we had pledged we would pass, the con that the members had pledged they would pass um, was a bill called the Congressional Accountability Act. And um, it, it was based on the premise that Congress should live by the laws it writes. And if, and so the National Labor Relations Act, Family and Medical Leave, Fair Labor Standards, Civil Rights Laws. Um, and it was very interesting because um, we, we sort of, you know, we had, we had written this bill as part of the contract and then the Republicans took the majority and Republicans and Democrats universally were like, we can't live by those laws. <laughs> you know? And so that was a really, really interesting eight week education process about, about how that was all gonna, how that was all gonna need to happen. And, you know, they were gonna have, folks were gonna have to get right with that. Um, and that was an important change, you know? I mean, we didn't get it right the first time. There were things, there were weaknesses in the way those, some of those laws were applied, but it was, but it was an important step forward. And, and since then, that law has been has been strengthened. Where I think um, there have been some challenges is that it also destabilized the status quo. Um, I mean, Republicans who thought they could never be in the majority were suddenly in the majority and had the opportunity to make some important changes. Um, that any that, that any time there's a change in leadership, that's an opportunity to make changes. Um, and and the outgoing majority. Um, was also having an experience that it never expected to have and didn't like it very much and so, sort of immediately became focused on how do we get that power back and that was really sort of the catalyst of this two-year cycle that really I think never stops now of who's going to be in power next um, and we didn't have that prior to 1995. I wouldn't blame Newt for that. I think it's, it's the byproduct of, of power changing but it has um, eroded the ability of the institution to function in, in ways that I think weren't intended because it has shifted the focus from, you know, the output of doing the laws to who's going to who's going to have the majority and who's going to be in a position to to decide what the laws are going to be. 
to its detriment. To its detriment. All right. Well, well, I think it's time for us to move on to our lightning round of questions that we ask okay. all the guests. Um, <laughs> okay. Ready? We'll move on to those. Okay. Uh, the first one is, uh, what do you think congressional representation should mean? It means building trust by listening to your constituents, doing your best to represent their views, and communicating back to them why you took the vote you did. And it also means serving them when they have problems. You know, I mean, it's ultimately it's about service and building trust. And um, you know, I've talked a little bit about the ways about some of the ways that I think members and staff can do that. Um, but I think it fundamentally comes down to service and trust. And when you say the this listening to the constituents, um, you know, there's this idea about constituents have their beliefs uh, and that the representatives should just vote those beliefs. Um, then there's this idea about the representative having to make judgments about what's in the long-term interest of the constituency. Where do you come out on that spectrum? So I think it's a process. I don't, I mean, it, it, very few things are that simple. Um, and I think it's a continuum and, and it's a cycle of listening to your constituents learning from them because they have experience that you don't have as a member and they have understanding that you don't have as a member. Um, helping them understand by communicating back to them what you know that they might not know and having the respect for them to do that. But then ultimately at the end of the day with all of those inputs and all of that knowledge, casting a vote that you think is in the best interest of your district and the country and being able to see those things as intertwined, right? Like we used to always say that we help our suburbs when we help our cities. You know, in our districts, all the districts I work for had urban, suburban and rural, rural constituencies. But, you know, and the rural, the rural constituents might not start from a perspective of it's important to, to help that to, to, to focus so many resources on that city. But when a, re, when a city is, is challenged, it has ripple effects that reach out to that rural community. And so being able to articulate to the residents of the rural community why you're spending so much time trying to address the challenges of the city and how that helps them and is in their interest. And th those two things really aren't that separate, that they're, they're connected. Um, is, is a perspective that I think a good leader can bring and um, that the members that I worked for tried to, tried to bring. Great, next question is, uh, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? Finding a balance that allows members to be in DC enough time continuously to actually legislate and attend hearings and not, const not spending, you know, not spending 50 days a year or, or 60 days a year just traveling back and forth is I think really important. So reducing the number of travel days and increase, reducing the number of travel days will, will de facto increase the amount of time they have to be in Washington and also increase the amount of time that they have to be at home in their districts. But spending less time going back and forth is I think really important because there's much time and effectiveness lost in that constant traveling, how that shakes out, whether it's, you know, they're different 
there are different um, positions on this. You know, some they're, they're advocates for two weeks in DC and two weeks in the district. They're advocates for, you know, one week and one week. Um, you know, I think it would be interesting to try and see, you know, different models, um, but but reducing the amount of time that they're traveling is the is I think the number one important thing. And then, um, being able to schedule hearings so that they're not all happening at the same time, so that members can really attend the hearings and be present and learn from the witnesses and learn from each other would also make a really important contribution. Um, you know, if you can do it, if, 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 if high schools can do it, I think Congress can too, you know, um, whether it's the purple block and the green block or the A block and the B block and the C block, um, you know, there are ways to do it so that committee X you know, has a morning hearing on Wednesdays one week and an afternoon hearing the next. If you're concerned that one of those is preferable for press coverage or whatever, you know, I mean, there are ways to work it out so that it's equitable. Um, and I would, I would love to see the institution take a crack at that because I think at the pace, I mean, it, 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 it wears members down. It wears everyone down. And, um, you know, it's often said, said that, that, a high percentage of members of Congress are reelected, but if you look, a higher percentage also don't run again. So a high, you know, consistently 90 plus percent of those who run for reelection are reelected, but a much smaller percentage of those who are currently in office will run again next year because they just are worn out. And that's a loss of expertise. That's a loss of capacity. Um, you know, it, that's a loss of knowledge serving the American people. Um, so so I, I, I think allowing members to be more present in hearings and working that scheduling out so that they can really learn from each other and, and learn about the issues um, would, would help them better serve the people. So in terms of the work week in Washington, you, you don't come down in a particular area other than to say that reduce the travel time, you're not a, you're not an advocate of the two week on one week home or, or do, you, do you have a preference on one of those? I will leave that to the members. <laughs> That's way above my pay grade, but I think they're on the right track if they're looking at it. <laughs> uh, okay. But you do think that there could be some smart scheduling when it comes to committee work uh, during the week? Yes. And what about work on oversight versus legislation when they're in Washington? Do you have, do you feel like they're under, under invested in oversight? Uh, or, you know, do you have a, an ideal mix of time between the two? How, however, however, it balances out. Organizing the time so that members can be present for both is important. You know, being able to watch the debate on the floor is important. Being able to hear what other members say on the floor is important. Um, being able to hear what other members say in hearings is important. And, um, and, and a schedule that will allow that to happen would make a big difference for a large number of members. And it would help them be better leg legislators. All right, next question is, how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? Well, I think the structures are there. It's really just having the time to do it. 
Um, I, th I think that, again, part of it is, you know, our members in hearings together, do they have the opportunity to talk to each other or are they running from meeting to meeting to meeting? Um, you know, real, real dialogue happens when you have the ability to sit down and talk to someone and hear what they're saying and not just, not just make your point and run. So should that, um, do you think that should happen in committee? Do you think it should happen with cameras on or off? Should it happen in a oh. closed room somewhere? Uh, that they all get, you know, that, that they can gather in small groups once a week, you know, what, what's the way to encourage that? What's the, what's the, the methodology? People need to see the process work. So it can't all happen behind closed doors. Um, but I, I, but I don't think there needs to be, you know, a camera at every gathering of members either. I think what's important is that they have the opportunity to gather and um, get to know each other because if I mean it's a it's a whole lot harder to demonize somebody that you know, um, and when the cameras are on, you know, again, oftentimes members as part of the continuing process of of um, of criticizing the institution, um, you know, will be critical of other members, say outrageous things, you know, the dialogue or the rhetoric becomes very heated. It's harder to do that if you know the person that you're talking about, right? If you know who they are, if you know their, if you know their spouse, you know if your spouses know each other. Um, and so I think there actually has to be a balance of of more time to just have human conversation, but then also having respectful conversation in public. And I think those two things are linked. I think one will happen if there are more opportunities for the other, and that takes us back to the schedule. Where you're not just running around like, like a crazy person. But it sounds time. like your your version of that is more of a committee, intimate setting versus the floor, for instance, where the debate or dialogue could happen. In the short term, because I think right now, I mean, you know, members just don't go to the other side of the aisle, you know, um, on the floor. Um, but they might talk to each other in committee where there are no cameras. Um, I am not, I'm not an advocate for less, I'm not an advocate for turning the cameras off, but I am an advocate for allowing more time, more members for building more, allowing more time for members to build relationships so that when the cameras are on, the American people can see a more respectful dialogue. Cause I think that's, I, I think they need to see it. And I think when they do see it, they'll feel better about, about the institution. Next question is, what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within the next 50 years? I don't think that good campaigns need to be as expensive as they are. That's not a new idea, but I really, I don't see how it benefits either the members who run or the voters. You know, it benefits um, the people who are paid that money and that system perpetuates itself um, at, on both sides of the aisle. Um, and I think it may take 50 years to fix it. Um, at the end of the day though, it's gonna take people who are willing to do hard things and take 
positions that initially they're going to take a lot of heat on and it's going to take enough of them that they can't be in that you know when one person stands up it's easy to take a shot at them when 40 people stand up it's harder um you know now you've got now you've got a coalition and so i think you know you look at members like you look at groups of members like say the problem solvers who have actually been able to to have impact in select discrete ways um, when they were working as a group of 20 or 25 or 30 members for Republicans and Democrats um, on, on a particular on a particular issue. Um, it's going to take it's going to take members, you know, enough members taking a stand in ways that, you know, that, that will be unpopular in their parties in the short term. Um, and then being willing to do that. In my experience, um, you know, one one not might not one ought not to be cavalier, um, but when you're willing to lose an election because it's important to you to do the right thing, I've seen members not lose re-election doing that but the but in this environment what it means what it, it will take is not just one member standing up here and there but a whole group of them standing up together to make some of the changes that we've talked about and um i i see small ind indicators that that could be happening but we're not but we're not there yet all right, next question is what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? Um, so this, this might, this, this will definitely be an answer that you probably haven't gotten. <laughs> um, but um, I would, I would actually say there's a, there's a book that shaped how I tried to be as a manager when I was a chief, but that I think articulates some really important truths still for all of us who are seeking to help Congress work better. And it's a book called Setting Course. It actually is put out by the Congressional Management Foundation. Um, it was one of the first things I read when I became a chief of staff. It's been published now for, I think, 30 years. I edited a couple of, a couple of early editions of it, you know, I think the 10th and 12th editions. Um, and it's everything from, you know, it's a book that is given to members and their chiefs when they are first elected. And it sort of opens up by saying, okay, you got elected, now what? And it has, it starts by giving members a very broad perspective on all the different paths they can take as a member. And then some very practical advice on how to reflect those choices operationally as managers in their budget, in their constituent service operation, in their outreach, um, in their outreach operation in the district, in how they schedule their time, how they make decisions, how to spend their time, you know, and how to make sure that all these decisions reflect the priorities that they've sent. And it essentially says, decide who you want to be, and then build a structure that supports it. Um, and, you know, I think fundamentally, that's, that's sort of what we're talking about now in this good, in, in the good government space is how do we help Congress, you know, make better decisions about who it wants to be, and then build the structure underneath it that helps it get there. Um, and um, so, 
So that's probably a different answer than you've gotten from some other people. It's not big think, but, uh, but it's some pretty fundamental stuff that I think if more members really kept it in mind and stayed true to it, could really help them operate better. All right. Well, the last one here is just about your plans for the future. Um, you know, what are you, what are you looking to do moving forward? Obviously you've got your work with the committee and what's beyond that. We'll see. Um, you know, it's a, we're very fortunate that the committee was renewed for two years, so we don't need to worry about renewal at the end of this year. And we can really focus on some, you know, my job is to support is to support the staff director and the chairman and, and vice chair in, um, you know, sort of helping them think some bigger thoughts over the next two years. And, um, and uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see where we go from there. I am, I am particularly interested, as you probably have gathered, in the way we can support district offices. And there's, um, there's increasing research in that. There's also increasing research in um, this concept of, of uh, the more people, on, when people are, are presented with all sides of an issue instead of just one party's view, they are much more tolerant of a vote that um, might not initially have agreed with their own inclination. And there are a number of groups that are working in that space to find innovative ways of reaching constituents, helping them learn about the issues in ways that are manageable for them. You know, in other words, a 50 page brief is not realistic, you know, for somebody who's just worried about putting food on the table and taking care of their family. Um, but they, but, but there are, are a lot of groups that are thinking about how they can make good, trustworthy, nonpartisan information available to people um, so that they can be better informed and make better and, and, and feel better about their engagement in the process. And I think that's an area that can really support the institution going forward and that I hope is going to continue to grow. So we'll see. Great. Well, Betsy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I appreciate it a lot. <laughs>